I'd rather pay for healthy food now than health care later. Would you? So the big question is, how do women over 40 like us keep weight off, have great energy, balance our hormones and our moods, feel sexy and confident, and master midlife? If you're like most of us, you're not getting the answers you need and remain confused and pretty hopeless to ever feel like yourself again. As an OBGYN, I had to discover for myself the truth about what creates a rock-solid metabolism, lasting weight loss, and supercharged energy after 40 in order to lose 100 pounds and fix my fatigue. Now, I'm on a mission. This podcast is designed to share the natural tools you need for impactful results and to give you clarity on the answers to your midlife metabolism challenges. Join me for tangible natural strategies to crush the hormone imbalances you're facing and help you get unstuck from the sidelines of life. My name is Dr. Kieran Dunstan. Welcome to the Hormone Prescription Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Hormone Prescription Podcast with Dr. Kieran. Thank you so much for joining me. My guest today is Lindsay Parsons. She has an amazing podcast called The Perfect Stool, Understanding and Healing the Gut Microbiome. When I discovered her recently, I saw her podcast and I saw all the amazing guests she had and just really the depth and breadth of her knowledge in gut health and healing. And I know how central this is to hormone health and overall health. I had to have her on the podcast and I reached out and she kind of said, well, I don't really do that kind of thing. I said, no, please, you got to come talk to my ladies. So I bring her here to you today and I hope you enjoy her as much as I do. In addition to hosting the podcast, The Perfect Stool, she's a certified health coach and she works in Tucson. She specializes in helping clients nationally heal gut health issues and reverse autoimmune disease, as well as lose weight without cutting calories. Who doesn't want that? She also has this wonderful quote about a calorie not being a calorie, and she tells a little bit of a story about that that you don't want to miss. She talks about fecal transplants, which if you don't know about that, you're going to want to hear about that. She talks about colostrum use for healing gut issues. We talk about SIBO, testing, what tests to do. We talk about everything. So you'll see this episode is a little all over the place because I was super excited to talk to her. I knew I only had her for maximum an hour. So I was trying to jump around and hit all the things that I really wanted to chat with her about. I hope you like it and I hope you take it as an invitation to listen to her podcast and go more in depth into a lot of these uh, issues that are of interest to you. There are way more than we could even cover. And I think we talked for 35, 40 minutes. So she has even way more available. So without further ado, please welcome Lindsay Parsons. Thank you. So glad to have <laughs> you here. I don't remember where I found your podcast, but I was super excited when I did. The Perfect Stool, Understanding and Healing the Gut Microbiome, and then all the amazing guests and topics that you've had and how in-depth you go. I was like, I have to talk to you, <laughs> and I have to have you on the podcast. So well, thank, thank you so you. much for coming. Yeah, well, I appreciate you for inviting me. So I think that a lot of people in the general public who are looking for answers to their health tend to only look for physicians. I'm glad to see that that's changing because I think there are some amazing health coaches, for instance, like you out there 
who really go so much deeper into a lot of these issues and really are better experts than a lot of physicians on things like you are for gut health. So talk to us about how you became so passionate about gut health and really what led you down that path. So it was really my own health struggles that led me into this path. So years ago, unbeknownst to me, my, an episode of food poisoning led to something called post-infectious IBS, which I only actually found out within the last year or so is an autoimmune diagnosis that I have because I didn't have a typical presentation of IBS, which you might think of as, you know, having diarrhea six times a day or severe constipation. I didn't have either of those, but I did have gut symptoms that, you know, including bloating and reflux and things like that, that went on for years. And when I did see traditional doctors didn't really get a lot of help other than suggesting I take proton pump inhibitors, which I did for something like 10 or 15 years. And now they super strict about not taking more than two weeks at a time. So, you know, the long-term damage from that, you can only imagine. And when I did eventually find my way to a functional medicine provider and was put on a course of herbal treatment for something called SIBO or small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is what happens when you have this post-infectious IBS, what happens is you have an autoimmune situation where the migrating motor complex or the process by which food is cleared through your intestines after eating is impacted negatively and is attacked by your own body. Therefore, you don't have that clearing of the intestines and clearing of the bacteria in the intestines. So you get these overgrowths and the stagnation, and then you end up with bloating every time you eat because it's coming, the food's coming in and immediately the bacteria are going crazy and producing gases. So I had that going on for years. And I just, I, you know, you, you meet a lot of people that have a lot of bloating after they eat and they just sort of rack it up to, I ate too much or you know, a whole number of things. So I did finally see somebody and they cleared the SIBO for me. Eventually it took herbals and then followed by rifaximin, which is a prescription, very expensive prescription drug to, that takes care of it. And then over time started changing my diet, getting rid of gluten, getting rid of dairy, really you know, reducing sugar significantly. And all of those things contributed to me getting much better. And then I also had several autoimmune diagnoses that you know, because when you have these kind of gut issues, you can have follow-on autoimmune issues. And so I had Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which really, you know, when I found out about that, that really kicked me into gear about trying to turn things around because the doctor had said to me, oh, you can just wait until your thyroid's gone, then we'll put you on, you know, thyroid hormones. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to sit around and wait until my entire thyroid's destroyed by this? No. That's not what I'm going to do. <laughs> right, but that's such a typical mainstream medical approach. Um, nothing to do. You have raging thyroid peroxidase antibodies. You have Hashimoto's, and they do nothing. And then they literally say, we're not going to do anything, you know, until you you burn out your thyroid, which is just kind of insane. So then what happened? At that point, I think I all of this is a bit perhaps out of order, but I did eventually get off gluten, get off dairy, and for a while off of soy mm, yeah. mm -hmm. and, and and I just kept retesting my hormones as I my I mean my antibodies rather my thyroid antibodies as I 
retested those foods. So it took a couple of years. I, you know, I stayed off gluten for a year before I think I even retested, but then I, you know, you try it again and you see what happens and, and each of those foods. So anyway, I ultimately decided gluten and dairy are the two things that I'm most sensitive to. And then of course, everyone should stay off added sugar. So I try and avoid that in any case. And Ultimately, I never had to take any thyroid hormones. My antibodies are now at zero. They're all completely normal. And I never, you know, I, they can still see the damage from Hashimoto's when they use an ultrasound on my thyroid, but I still have normal TSH levels. I mean, not even just normal, optimal TSH levels. That's awesome. I want everyone listening to hear that clearly. <laughs> she just told you that she healed herself from Hashimoto's, has no antibodies, and has optimized thyroid function. This is what's possible with a root cause approach. And I think that when I talk about this on the podcast or on social media, people don't believe me because it's such an anomaly in mainstream medicine. And of course, Regular doctors will look at you like you're crazy and say that's not true, but it happens every day. We see it's an everyday miracle. So I love that you came down this path and you became so passionate about gut health. And I think to me, it makes sense why you focused having the autoimmune disease or diseases focused on gut health. But I don't know that ever that's going to make sense to everyone. Can you help them make that link between gut health and autoimmune disease? Absolutely. So there are three things that are necessary for an autoimmune condition to happen. And one is a genetic predisposition for that particular autoimmune disease. So some people's bodies will attack one, some, one organ, some people's bodies will attack a different organ. Then you need to have a leaky gut or intestinal permeability, which means that the tight junctions in your intestines are not holding together or there's holes through actual cells in the intestines that are letting out both toxins, undigested food, bacteria, body parts, all sorts of things that your immune system is going to then start attacking. And then you activate the immune system like this. And that's what inflammation is in essence. And when you have undigested gluten proteins in particular, or gliadin it's called is the protein in gluten, it resembles the cells in your thyroid gland and your body will attack this protein and then also create antibodies that attack your thyroid. So in essence, it's a what they call molecular mimicry or some sort of confusion in your body where it starts attacking itself. So that's always at the root of all autoimmune diseases. Yes. So if you have an autoimmune disease, I always tell people by definition, you have a gut problem and people will say to me, well, my gut works just fine. I eat, I poop, I don't have loose stool, I'm not constipated, I don't get indigestion gas, bloating. And they say, I don't have a gut problem. I say, yes, you do. If you have an autoimmune disease, you've got a gut problem. So where is the disconnect? Why do people mm -hmm. seemingly have no gut symptoms, but they have a gut problem? Help us understand that. Well, sometimes I think what happens is there's a balance of bacteria in the gut such that your stool looks okay, right? Like maybe you have some constipating bacteria and you have some loosening bacteria and together they've canceled each other out. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a leaky gut. Typically there is some sort of a gut infection causing leaky gut, but it doesn't necessarily, I mean, you could have toxins that are also in play or mold or things like that. But in general, something is causing your gut to be leaky. So you know, it's interesting because sometimes I will see people's gut tests for potential stool donors for fecal transplants. And 
and I'll say, oh no, you can't take this person's stool. They may have good stool and they may seem healthy and have good digestion, but it's just full of problems. Like, I mean, they have, you know, major pathogens that you'd never want to take on. So just because you don't have any obvious gut problems doesn't mean something's not going to show up on a test. Right. Yeah. I mean, you may not overtly have symptoms, but that doesn't mean that on a microscope or on the micro level, you're not having problems. You are if you have an autoimmune disease. Yeah. So you mentioned testing. Let's start with that because a lot of people, you know, they're used to going to their regular doctor and what happens at the regular doctor? It's Oh, doc, I have indigestion after I eat. No tests are done and they're given a proton pump inhibitor. Or, hey, doc, I can't poop. No tests are done and then they're given some promotility agent for their gut. Hey, doc, I alternate diarrhea constipation. Oh, diagnosis of exclusion, you have irritable bowel syndrome mm -hmm. and they're put on antispasmodic. So they're not used to doing gut stool tests. And I remember when I first started doing this work and I started with my gynecologic patients and I told them they needed to do a stool test and they would look at me like I was crazy. What are you talking about? Well, you need to poop in this pie plate and send it off to scoop it into these little tubes and send it to the lab. And they're like, what? I'm not doing that because no doctor ever asked them to do that. Mm -hmm. So. Talk about, you know, the testing, maybe what are some of your favorite tests to do and what it shows you and how people can get comfortable with this idea of pooping in the pie plate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say the people who come to me have no problem giving up their stool for a test because they are coming typically with gut issues. However, yeah, my favorite is the GI map. I like that one because it includes H. pylori and I have found now over the course of, of three or four years now of, of helping people with gut issues that people who are severely constipated often have an overgrowth of H. pylori or just a high level of it that's given they're symptomatic is also problematic. So that's a bacteria that causes ulcers or stomach cancer, but not always, only when it has certain virulence factors. Nevertheless, people will typically present with stomach pain, with reflux, but sometimes just constipation. Sometimes they don't have those upper GI symptoms with H. pylori. So I like that it includes that. It also, the GI map also includes, you know, a number of different levels of bacteria in the gut. So you can see if certain classes or certain genera or certain species are elevated or too low, both of the commensals, the normal good ones, and then the potentially pathogenic and then the actual toxic pathogenic ones. It also includes all the parasites. So you can catch if somebody has a parasite. And then it includes markers of gut health and just digestion. So like, do you have enough pancreatic enzymes? Do you have elevated levels of beta-glucuronidase, which ties into hormones? Do you have sufficient secretory IgA or is that super elevated indicating your gut immune system is on high alert and trying to fight something. So I just like that it's a good overall test of various markers. And then of course it has a marker for calprotectin, which is a marker of inflammatory bowel disease and the inflammation in the colon. Yes, that's actually my favorite too. So great minds think alike. I think it really gives you the most comprehensive view. And sometimes people will come to me and say, well, I had a Viome test. Can't you oh. use that? And I go, yeah, that's not useful at all. Can you share with your people your thoughts on the Viome? That one or any other one of these direct-to-consumer tests are not, as far as I'm concerned, clinically useful. They might be good for the consumer, but they typically, you know, they will make all sorts of 
commentary about what diet changes are necessary, for example, based on your microbiome and no harm in trying those things. But when you're dealing with parasites or digestive dysfunction, dysbiosis, et cetera, I think you need a clinical level test for that kind of stuff. There's just not a lot of actionable, for a practitioner, there's not a lot of actionable information on a biome test. I agree. And I think the same is true for a lot of the DNA direct-to-consumer tests, like is it 23andMe? It's just not all the actionable information that you would want. Like the Alzheimer's gene, Mm -hmm. that's something I think everyone should have. And uh, they don't include that. Oh, really? I feel like they've included, well, so maybe they have. Well, you can take, you can pull the raw data. I'll sometimes ask my clients for their raw data and I put it in genetic genie and I run that and then I see, because I, because I know that I'm, I'm APOE4, APOE3, no, homozygous. So I have high, high Alzheimer's risk, which I, the only reason I know that is from the 23andMe. So I know it came through either on genetic genie or directly on 23andMe. Great. And so how has that empowered you? Do you feel like it's empowered you or disempowered you to have that information? I don't know that I would be doing anything different because I'm already somebody who seeks to optimize my health and have been my entire life. So I don't know. But I think as I get older, I'm definitely going to be more attentive to any kind of lapses in memory. And then at some point, I'm probably going to get hooked up with that program, the Dale Bredesen's program related to Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's, just to make sure that I'm doing absolutely everything preventative and everything testing wise to make sure I don't lose my memory any sooner than necessary. Yes, absolutely. The recode protocol. And I think there were 28 parameters, 28 things you need to be doing that are totally worthwhile. My mom it has advanced Alzheimer's. So it's something I'm very keenly aware of. And, you know, it's too late for her. Like I shared in a recent TEDx talk that I did talking about her only risk factor was that she had been menopausal for three decades without hormone therapy. And that is, of course, one of the main tenets of the RECODE protocol is using hormones therapy, natural hormone therapy. Speaking of which, The podcast is called The Hormone Prescription, so I tie everything into hormones because, to me, everything in the body is related to hormones. So how does, let's go back to autoimmune disease with gut dysfunction, leaky gut, intestinal hyperpermeability as a key factor. How does this interact with the hormonal milieu in the body? In my particular case, I'm not sure if there's a huge interaction, but in general, like I mentioned on the GI map, there's a hormone, uh, I mean, a, uh, an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. And that is an enzyme that breaks the tight bond between glucuronic acid and toxins, including mm-hmm. circulating estrogens in the intestines. And so when that gets elevated and certain bacteria in the gut produce it. So certain bacteria from the the, uh, class bacteroides, also certain clostridia, E. coli, and there's a lot of healthy E. coli, not just the ones that are known to be pathogenic, and staphylococcus, rheumococcus, eubacterium. So there's a number of different bacteria that produce it. And when those tend to get overgrown, then you can have excess beta-glucuronidase, and then this is breaking apart this bond and recirculating estrogens in the body, which can lead to the estrogen-related breast cancer, potentially colon cancer. So there's there's some correlations between those. And 
when that happens, what you can do to reverse it is to move to a lower fat, lower meat diet, to more of a plant-based diet, because higher fiber will help undo that process. Yes, it's so true, the beta-glucuronidase. So anyone who is suffering, which is very common, sometimes in 30s and 40s-year-old women before they go through menopause with excess estrogen, and symptoms of that. It could be fibroids, endometriosis, heavy painful periods, which is often associated with weight gain, bloating. These are estrogen dominant conditions. You gotta look at your beta glucuronidase in your stool because it could be elevated. So that could be one of the key causes of one of your hormonal imbalances. And then the other thing I always like to say for anyone with an autoimmune disease is, You've got a foot on the accelerator of inflammation and that's this leaky gut, but you have no brake on your car and that would be cortisol, which is your body's natural steroid. So what do they do for when you have a flare up of any type of inflammation or autoimmune disease, steroids is the treatment and that's your body's cortisol inside naturally. So you have a brake failure and you have a foot on the accelerator. So it's kind of a two pronged problem. So you've got to address both, but by healing your gut, you can work on your cortisol as well. So let me interrupt you for a second, because when yeah. you said all those things as I think of this stuff now more in terms of my client than myself, but I did actually have estrogen dominance. No, no doubt I had always low progesterone and I went through years of infertility. So wow. I, I assume that all of my gut stuff was at the root of that as well as the autoimmune stuff and probably, uh, you know, some thyroid issues. Yeah, you know, I think it's, isn't it Louis Pasteur who said death begins in the colon? <laughs> <laughs> and I think it, it's absolutely true. The gut is the center of your body physically, and it's the center of your health. Literally, it has branches to everything. And, you know, I always like to say that I ask people, what's your biggest interface with the external environment? And they say, oh, my skin. And I say, no, think again. And it takes them a minute and most people don't get it. It's your gastrointestinal tract because you're taking the external environment and you're putting it inside of you into this tube that seems like it's in you, but it really just passes through and interacts. So it's like an inner skin and it's as big as two doubles tennis courts, the surface area. And so really that's your biggest ability for the environment to program you. You mentioned genetics, right? That's part mm -hmm. of probably five, 10, maybe 20% of our health. But then what turns on those genes in terms of our epigenetic code and, and food is the biggest programmer of that that we're putting into our body and think of all the food you eat in the day. So I, I wanted to, to touch on something else you said. Well, we were talking about testing, and I think you mentioned earlier about that you had SIBO, small intestine bacteria overgrowth. Yes. What are your favorite tests to diagnose that? And it's such a big, gnarly topic for the people who have it. How do you get rid of it? You mentioned the migrating motor complex, which a lot of people really ha don't have that working, so there's no motility going. So can you talk about SIBO? I don't tend to use breath tests, I'll start by saying. Mm -hmm. I tend to use the GI map and organic acids in general when I see somebody with some type of presentation of bloating and what look like SIBO symptoms. Mm -hmm. That being said, if 
after looking at those and after taking herbal supplements to get rid of bacterial overgrowth, there still seems to be no resolution. I may recommend either the Trio Smart, if especially if I suspect there could be hydrogen sulfide overgrowth, or I might recommend the IBS Smart test to see if they have post infectious IBS to see if they have that autoimmune component and are always going to be dealing with SIBO. So some people just get this overgrowth, they clean it up once and they're all good. And then other people like me are going to constantly have to be fighting it. So I have to take something each night, uh, a prokinetic, in order to keep things moving in my migrating motor complex and just be conscientious of not eating tons, no, not snacking all day long, letting my intestines empty out completely and periodically have to kind of re-kill the bacteria. I have to take antimicrobials, you know, every year roughly in some quantity when I start to see things getting bloaty again. Okay. So now the average person listening and probably a lot of the clients that you see and that I see, they've been to their regular doctor and they've got this bloating problem that seems pretty consistent. They're probably not going to get any of these tests, are they? There are some doctors at this point who, who will order SIBO breath tests. That's not unheard of now at this point for GI doctors. And some will have heard of and may be using some, the Trio Smart or the IBS Smart because they, are, they were developed by an MD who is the expert, Mark Pimentel, who's the expert in SIBO and who does try and reach that traditional audience or conventional, I should say, audience. But typically, you'll have to ask for and seek out these more specialized tests with somebody who's either practicing functional medicine, a naturopath, a health coach, somebody who's mm-hmm. more of a non-conventional expert in gut health. Yes. And so it sounds like you're describing, which has kind of been my experience too with people who have SIBO. Some people do recover and they don't have a problem any longer, but there is a subset of people who this is a very chronic problem. Can you talk a little bit about why someone might suffer with that as a chronic long-term condition? Sure. So I did talk about the primary, I guess I think about it as the primary, but I'm not actually sure in terms of percentages. But I did mention the the primary, which is the post-infectious IBS, this incidence of food poisoning where you have an autoimmune problem. You can also have, of course, thyroid issues that can contribute to it, hypothyroid. You can have traumatic brain injuries that are causing issues with the vagus nerve and with just movement in the intestines from that. Of course, infections, diabetes can be a root cause, mold toxicity. You can have problems with your production of stomach acid. So you can have low stomach acid or hypochlorhydria, and that can cause overgrowth of bacteria or poor bile flow, uh, lack of pancreatic enzymes or brush border enzymes. There can be deficiencies in your secretory IgA. If you've been under periods of extreme stress, that can reduce secretory IgA, which is your gut immune defense, which is what is killing off these bacteria that are coming in. Mm -hmm. You can have medications that you're taking that could be causing problems and slowing your motility, obviously proton pump inhibitors, but also antidepressants, antispasmodics, opiates, narcotics. Then you can also have issues that are physical in nature. So you've had a past abdominal surgery and you could have adhesions, for example, that are keeping your intestines from flowing properly. Endometriosis, which I also had, can be a root cause. 
Ehlers-Danlos syndrome can also cause problems with motility, and then you can have dysfunction of your ileocecal valve. Yeah, there's a, such a long list of problems that you can have that can contribute to this. And I think, you know, people listening, I kind of want, because you have such breadth and depth of knowledge, for them to really get a good idea of what you what you know and what you offer. You have so much information on your podcast. We're definitely gonna give everyone, um, we'll put the link in the show notes to the podcast. And I was just looking at all the episodes you have. I was like, oh my gosh, I wanna talk to her about this. I wanna talk to her about that. I want her to share this, I want her to share that. And so I think even if you're listening and you're like, oh my gosh, you guys are going way too fast and covering way too much ground, that is information for you to spur your interest to go watch or listen to Lindsay's podcast because she has so much valuable information. And then you can select the topics that interest you and you can listen to those. She talks about the FMT, the fecal microbiota transplant as a treatment. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what that is and what it's used for, because I don't think a lot of people know that that's an up and coming treatment for GI problems. Okay, so FMT in the US is legal only in non-experimental contexts for recurrent C. difficile infections, which is a very potent bacteria that causes you know, explosive diarrhea that can kill you and kills, I don't know, something like 40,000 people a year. So if you have recurrent C. diff that's not treatable by antibiotics a couple times, then you could, in theory, if you can access it, get a fecal transplant done in a hospital. And it's basically taking the stool from a healthy donor and either putting it in capsule format or in enema format, and then you get a retention enema of it. And for C. diff, it's usually just one treatment. For other, so in other countries, it's legal for other conditions like IBS or inflammatory bowel disease with different levels of success given the condition, even for autoimmune conditions, for, for any number of things, even, even conditions you might think aren't connected to the gut like ALS or multiple sclerosis. Well, that's autoimmune, so you may think that. But in any case, there's definitely some testimonies on a number of different conditions. So in in particular, I think I know of clinics that do this in Australia, in the UK, in the Bahamas, in Canada. Now I think there's one in Mexico focusing on, on children with autism in particular. So, oh, and I think there used to be one in Argentina. I'm not sure if that's still there. So around the world, you can do treatments and typically those will last for two five-day courses, essentially over the course of two weeks during the work week. And, you know, there's just some amazing testimonials of, of oh, and of course, mental health. I hadn't even discussed that because I have a lot of stories of people with serious mental health issues from bipolar to depression to anxiety that, and pan and pan, pans and pandas that have been resolved after fecal transplants. And then of course, it's also being used and in particular, a very purified form that's an experimental form being used for autism. So it has the potential to to be quite life-changing, which is not to say it is for everyone. Uh, there's a Facebook group full of people who have tried it and it didn't help them. So I think the donor quality and just sort of the good match between the donor and the recipient is also important. So it's not always a foolproof thing, but 
but there are, for those for whom it makes a difference, boy, it sure can make a big difference. Yeah, and I think probably some people listening are thinking, wow, that's really radical, because I know when I talk about coffee enemas, some people just really freak out. <laughs> They're like, what? I'm not doing putting what in my butt? No. And so when we talk about a fecal transplant via enema, I know some people get freaked out, but you know, if anybody listening has heard any of the recent data or information or knowledge that we have about the microbiome and how key it is for our overall health, you really, for some people, could call it almost like getting a brain transplant because your gut is your second brain. And I did see the podcast episode that you had with the woman who I think she healed herself from bipolar mm. using fecal transplant. Can you talk a little bit about her story? So she was in Australia and had bipolar for many years. I think she had probably, I think if I recall correctly, I think there had been suicide attempts. She had been in the hospitalized maybe five times with you know major depressive episodes. So it was a serious and ongoing problem for her from which she would emerge, you know, for periods of time where she could function normally, but mostly couldn't hold down a job. She did get married, though, to a wonderful man who also had wonderful stool and at some point heard about... Yeah. New criteria for finding a partner. Absolutely. <laughs> Did so, I get a stool sample before we Seriously. Out? Well, she didn't test it or anything. She just tried it. And sure enough, it really worked for her. I think you, I think she did it more intensely at first and then more periodically afterwards, but it absolutely pulled her out of her depressions and, you know, in large part resolved her bipolar. I wouldn't say she said it was, I think she emphasized it wasn't like a hundred percent cure, but from what I could hear, it really turned her life around. So she just DIY'd it. She DIY'd it. Yeah. So there's a lot of people doing that in the U.S., by the way. They're just finding donors. They may or may not be testing them. I always recommend, of course, if you're going to consider a donor that you do the full protocol of testing, which involves both blood tests for infectious diseases and sexually transmitted transmitted infections, as well as a stool test to, to make sure they don't have any of the major stool pathogens that you could potentially get. Because especially if you're doing it for reasons related to gut issues and you're, if you're in fragile health, like especially if you have any kind mm -hmm. of inflammatory bowel disease, you can really mess yourself up if you bring in a pathogen and your gut is not prepared to fight it. Yes. Yeah. I would say, you know, it'd be similar to having sex. It's pretty intimate. Yeah. You might want to Even tested. more so. <laughs> <laughs> right. Even more so. Yeah. Wow. So much. And then I was wondering, I saw you had another, a few episodes, I think, on colostrum, yeah, the one with Niraj Naik, is that how you say his name? And how and breathwork and colostrum that he used to restore his gut. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of that. So colostrum is the first milk that comes out of the breast and or the cow <laughs> in this case, because if you buy it, you're buying cow colostrum. And it is full of antibodies and transfer factors and immunoglobulins. And in particular, now they're also selling these serum bovine immunoglobulins, which are extracted from colostrum. So I often recommend those to clients who have serious gut issues because it just kind of enhances your immune system in the gut without specifically, it's not like an antibiotic, which kind of indiscriminately kills. It's more like bringing in an extra immune system. 
So mm -hmm. I often do recommend those powders to people who have who have something that you don't quite want to hit with an antimicrobial right off the bat. So anyway, so in his case, though, he used colostrum to heal his gut. And so it's just, I think it's just a way of bringing in a new immune system to the gut slowly but surely and helping it turn itself around. Yeah, I love them as like, it's like a supportive, I don't know that it fixes necessarily, it's a band-aid and it gives support in the short term and can help promote healing. So I love them. And then I was just interested for you to also talk about breath work, which is something that I use in my programs all the time with people. Um, I teach them about the nature of HRV, heart rate variability and parasympathetic, sympathetic, autonomic nervous system balance and how that really programs your gut, your gut's motility. Is that something that you recommend for people? I have recommended it to certain people since that podcast in particular. And then since I read the word, the book Breath by, well, I'm in the middle of it, by James Nestor. Yes. So I definitely have gotten more interested in the breath and how it relates to good health. In particular, now, if I have a client who snores, I'll suggest mouth taping. And mm -hmm. if I have a client for whom everything has been tried in terms of diet changes, in terms of supplements and antimicrobials, and they're still kind of the root cause of their stress or of their dysfunction has not been identified, I'll really think about breath work and or some other type of practice like meditation or yoga, et cetera, to start reducing stress and just bringing some focus. But I, I probably have not exploited it to the extent that it that it could be because there's always so many different things you can bring in with a client and you don't want to overload them. <laughs> that is so true. And along those lines, I'm wondering if, because we've jumped all over the place, because I'm just so excited to talk to you. And there's so many things I want to ask you about and chat with you about. But for everybody listening, can you kind of bring it full circle, maybe using a client who comes to mind that maybe had really been suffering for a long time and who came to you and kind of what is the process that you usually take people through and what does is, what is a gut journey look like for people? So I have such a variety of clients from people who think they've been suffering a long time because they've had something for a year versus people who've had something for 15 years. And But I would say uh, a typical journey might be somebody who comes in with a little more complexity. Maybe they have both gut issues and autoimmune issues. And typically we would just have a first appointment to talk over a complete medical history in the way that no doctor has ever sat and listened to you where I'm going to totally try and understand all the potential root causes of what has come to pass and how they've ended up where they are. And then together we'll decide on what tests fit in based on what their symptoms are and then what their budget is. Because obviously not everybody can afford $1,000 worth of testing right off the bat. It would be lovely if everybody could, but not everyone can. So we have to be thoughtful of that. And then typically we'll get the results back and then we'll go over those results and all the potential things that could help given what, what was found on the tests. And I'll educate them about the protocols that practitioners use to deal with those, what's come up, be it a, some type of dysbiosis or SIBO or overgrowth of candida or something like the ion profile. We may be looking at deficiencies in amino acids or in fatty acids or vitamins and minerals that can come up on organic acids or on the ion profile. So we'll look at that and then typically I'm recommending things to them over a period of time because you can't, again, throw 
100 supplements at a person at the same time. People can only take so much. I mean, there are people who are just like, give it all to me. I want it all right now. <laughs> but other people are going to be like, yeah, that's too much, both financially and too much in terms of taking pills. So, you know, I'll, I'll explain to them what, what the different supplements, the benefits are, and what I think in a good order would probably be for doing it. And then diet changes, of course, will be recommended based on you know, what they've already tried. But I find that by the time people get to me, they're usually already eating some version of a paleo diet or I do occasionally get people who are plant-based and I often have to push them towards getting more protein somehow, mm -hmm. potentially moving towards eating some animal protein or some seafood just because I can see frequent deficiencies in amino acids when that happens. And, and it's also very common to see mental health issues in my clients. So if that's the case, then I'm often you know, educating them about the amino acids that can bring up serotonin and dopamine. And you can see the deficiencies of that on an, on a, an organic acids test, or you can see actual levels of the amino acids on the ion profile. And then with autoimmune stuff, then we're also looking at supplements that can help reduce inflammation if we've already addressed gut stuff. So typically we'd go through addressing any kind of gut stuff. But then after that, if there's still flaring, then we might look at anti-inflammatory supplements like, you know, fish oil or SPMs or I get the name of it off the bat. Oh, alpha glycosyl isoquercetrin. Quercetrin, so, boswellia, curcumin. Yeah, yeah curcumin, right. Those kind of anti-inflammatory things. So over time, you know, I'll educate them about each kind of supplement and how it might play a role in helping them heal. And yeah, so I'll typically see people over the course of five appointments that might take most of a year and slowly but surely help them restore their health. And get them at least to a point of stability. I, there's no magic cure in terms of autoimmune disease. Not everybody's going to have the result I did because I caught it early enough and there was not so much damage from it to my thyroid. Sometimes, you know, you have a certain amount of damage and it's not going to be, you're not going to reverse it, but you may reduce your medication dosages and you may at least get to a point of stability or potentially if, if the client is interested, get off any kind of, you know, steroid medications or other autoimmune prescription medications. Yeah, immunosuppressive right. drugs, right. I'm curious to know, I mean, we're, we're getting short on time. I'm gonna have to let you go, but I wanna know your thoughts on alcohol because my thoughts are not necessarily popular. So I just want to see where you stand on that with gut health. Well, it is toxic. There's no question about that. <laughs> and it does kind of go in and cause some damage to, to gut bacteria. And if you're having gastritis and upper GI issues, for sure, it's definitely not helpful. That being said, I, I can't say I'm a non-drinker, <laughs> so I'm not. But generally, my clients who are really sick are just not drinking in the first place. So I'm not having to tell most of them to stay away from alcohol. They're, they've already done it themselves. So obviously, you want to stay at the lowest levels. You want to be considered a, a low level drinker, not a moderate level, which unfortunately for a woman is no more than a drink a day. And for men, no more than two up until 65, and then one after 65, if I recall correctly. And then the other things is that people want to say, well, do we all have to stop eating gluten and cow's milk dairy, Lindsay, do we? I will typically recommend 
cutting out gluten and dairy to everybody for some period of time. Now, if I have a very simple case of SIBO that resolves quickly and easily and the person says, I don't seem to have any problem with gluten, I cut it out and I put it back in and I had no difference, then I won't necessarily say you have to cut out gluten. If you have an autoimmune issue, I'm going to say gluten's gone for life. Yeah, I, I generally would agree with that for sure. Lindsay, so much great information that you shared today. I know everybody listening has been like, it's a whirlwind, Karen. You took her all over the place. I know, I know, guys, but I wanted you to get a sampling of everything that she has to offer. There's so much more even on her podcast, The Perfect Stool, which is an amazing name and great content. You've had some of the same guests I've had, Steve Wright and Dr. Grace Lou, and there are probably more if I continue to look at it. I did want to ask you about this before we wrap up. You shared uh, some quotes that you like before we started with me. And I just want to share this one. A calorie is not a calorie. And can you tell everyone what that means to you? Absolutely. So number one, before I did this, I was an advocate for healthier school food. And one of the things that we fought the most in that particular battle in Montgomery County, Maryland, was to try and reduce the sugar in school food. And I remember sitting at a hearing with the state Senate trying to get a bill passed to reduce sugar in school food and having a former home ec teacher who was a state senator say, well, a calorie is just a calorie. And I said, no, it is not. In fact, that is a soda marketing campaign to try and convince you you can just go calories in calories out just exercise more and you can drink your coke every day which i definitely do not believe so part of the issue with calories is that they're not metabolized the same so for example when you eat protein 25 to 30 percent of it is the of the calories of protein is used up just in digesting the protein whereas it's it's much lower number numbers for carbohydrates and fat so you know something like 6 to 8% of the carbs are used to digest carbs and 2 to 3% of the fat so therefore you're getting a lot more calories from your fat and your carbs and then you know you also have different foods and have that have different impact on the body so for example fructose versus glucose glucose can be used by almost all your cells fructose is going to your liver and ultimately mostly being stored as fat so, you know, that's why the the whole thing against high fructose corn syrup, not to say glucose is good, but just to say that that they impact your body differently. And then of course you have fiber. So, you know, if you eat 100 calories of almonds versus 100 calories of soda, that impacts your body in a completely different way because the almonds have healthy fats and they have fiber and that is going to slow down the absorption of the calories of any sugars, etc. that are in in the food when you're eating fiber. So it just makes a complete difference of which kinds of foods you're eating. A calorie is not a calorie. It's so true. And I, I really love to help people understand that a lot of people believe the food that they eat is only about calories. And it's speaking to your system on so many levels, right? Mm-hmm. In so many languages at one time, it's like they're having this international language conference. It's speaking because of its bioforce, its life force, its prana, its chi, whatever you want to call it. It's speaking nutrition, right? Certain vitamins, which are not present in soda and in the almonds are. Of course. It's speaking the fiber language, right? Or it's not speaking fiber language. And so it's about so much more than macronutrients, which are calories. It's about micronutrients, energetic nutrients. And I think that goes to the other quote that you shared with me that I love, I'd rather pay for healthy food now than healthcare later. 
So one of people's biggest objections to doing this type of work is eating, trying to eat healthy and particularly organic. And so talk a little bit about that and then we'll go ahead and wrap up. Okay. Well, I just have, I've been of the philosophy since I have tried to turn around my health that, that indeed it is worth it to pay for more expensive organic foods. And in particular, and this is a lot of people, they, they think, well, I, I mostly buy organic vegetables. And I say, do you eat pasture-raised meats? How about your dairy products? Are they pasture-raised? So I don't, I, I, the only dairy I eat is, is butter and ghee. And so I make sure that those products, and, the, and I know it costs $4 more a pound for pasture-raised butter, but I get it because that's where all the toxins from the body settle is to your fat. So if you want to maximize your, you know, or minimize your consumption of toxins, then you definitely want to look for high quality meat and wild caught seafood and that kind of thing. Not, and then of course, low mercury seafood at that when you're looking for your animal products, because the animals, you know, you think about everything else, it's the build up the entire environment and the plants that builds into the, into the animal and the protein and the fat. So true. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for joining us today. Lindsay Parsons, we are going to have links in the show notes. You've got a free e-booklet available on your website, Finding Your Root Cause Through Stool and Organic Acids Testing. So I'll have a link over to that. We'll have a link to the 30-minute breakthrough session that people can do by phone or video chat. We'll have a link to the podcast also that you definitely want to check out if you're interested in your health and healing from a root cause Gut is a huge part of that. So you want to go there and check out the perfect stool so you can have the perfect stool. And thanks so much for joining me today. Any last words you'd like to leave everybody with? No, just want to thank you so much for bringing me on and for checking out my podcast and recommending it. I really appreciate it. It is absolutely my pleasure to have you here. And thank you all for listening today. Thanks for spending a little bit of your day with us. Hopefully you have learned something today that you can put into action. This is all about taking action to move your health to the brilliance that it can be. I thank you for joining me and I'll see you next week. Until then, peace, love, and hormones, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. I know that incredible vitality occurs for women over 40 when we learn to speak hormone and balance these vital regulators to create the health and the life that we deserve. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you'd give me a review and subscribe. It really does help this podcast out so much. You can visit thehormoneprescription.com where we have some free gifts for you. And you can sign up to have a hormone evaluation with me on the podcast to gain clarity into your personal situation. Until next time, remember, take small steps each day to balance your hormones and watch the wonderful changes in your health that begin to unfold for you. Talk to you soon.